Everybody, I'm glad to see you. This is our sixth week uh, on understanding Israel, and uh, I originally thought that this series would be four to six weeks, but it looks like we're going to end next time on a seventh week, and so, uh, yeah, I didn't know it would go this long, but what can you do? Uh, Some stuff just went overboard, and whenever I ran out of time, I decided to extend what was left over, and that's what you get. Well, uh, today we're just going to talk about uh, the issue of amillennialism. I want to talk about that. Now, before we get into it, um, I want to s- remind us that every story matters, uh, not just because of the journey, but ultimately because of the way that the story ends, right? If, 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 you, uh, if you get into a story and it has a, a bad ending, then no matter how good all of it was up until then, if the ending is disappointing, the whole thing falls apart, You've known that about TV shows and movies and all that kind of stuff. But uh, think about the story that God has written, right? It all comes to a climactic and powerful ending that proves that God is God. And God could not write or prophesy or predict the end of human history unless he was in absolute control of it. Right? How could God tell us how things are going to end if he doesn't know how they're going to end? How could he tell us how they're going to end if he can't make it get to that end? Whenever God tells us about the future, it's to produce a response in us in the present, right? Everything he tells us about tomorrow is to bring us to faithfulness today. He tells us about heaven. Why? So that we can enjoy the anticipation of it now. He tells us about the future glorious return of Christ. Why? So that we can eagerly uh, live in anticipation of that glorious hope now. Uh, He tells us about the fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel. Why? So we can trust his plan and trust his promises and trust his word and that we could wait with joy to rule with him on the earth as his people. But not everyone who understands or believes that God will actually do what he said. Not everyone uh, understands uh, or or, or believes that. um, and, uh, And that affects their regard for Israel. They don't know that God will restore the kingdom of Israel, that Jesus will rule in Israel, in in Jerusalem. For a lot of people, it's just simply lack of training. They haven't been taught well. For others, they they kind of veer into this, uh, this this territory of theology that's, uh, that's rooted in error, where they say that either the promises to Israel were canceled or forfeited by the Jews because of their unbelief, Or they say that those promises are figurative, and so we shouldn't expect a physical kingdom at all, or a physical reign of Jesus when he returns. Or they say that those promises are really just for the church and not for the ethnic Jews. Now, all of these perspectives deny a normal, natural interpretation of Scripture, a literal, physical, 1,000-year kingdom for the Jews. That would be the normal, natural understanding of Scripture. That's what it says. That's what it means. Uh, and they they don't believe this uh, this description of a one thousand year kingdom, a millennial kingdom. They they say that there is no millennial kingdom, and so their position is called amillennialism. The the a in the front means not. There is no millennial kingdom. Uh, they are against uh, the idea of a millennial kingdom, and so they believe that the church today, this right now, like you know the way that things are right now, this is the kingdom that the Old Testament t- passages talk about. They say this is what the kingdom is, that when he talks about the, the kingdom and, you know, mountains 
brought low rivers uh, uh, rivers coming out from Jerusalem and uh, and God's glory and people coming to uh, to Israel and and asking for uh, asking to see the Lord and learn about Him and stuff. That's what it is right now. That that's the church right now, and that's. I don't know, uh, you're hard-pressed to prove that, to say that all the passages in the Old Testament uh, amount to what things are like right now. It just doesn't seem that way, especially because the Old Testament prophecies about Israel say that it'll be glorious, prosperous, victorious, and yet the warnings about the church in the New Testament is that the church will be persecuted, the world will hate you, Right, and that uh, that Satan will do his best to stop you, and he won't be able to overcome the uh, the church, but uh, but he's going to try. Anyway, the, uh, that's where what amillennial amillennialism is. Amillennialism is also called uh, amillennialism, and both of them just sound like you're trying to say a complicated word with a jawbreaker in your mouth. But uh, we, we, there, our question today is: Where does this kind of thinking come from? Right, where does amillennialism come from? Where does a figurative interpretation of all the covenants of Israel come from? Uh, I'll give you a brief history of the rise of, of amillennialist thoughts, uh, even though eschatology really developed in the past 200 years. But uh, in, in history past, there were seeds of thought that kind of led to people organizing and systematizing uh, the, the theology of amillennialism. So after uh, we run through a little bit of history on that, then I'll show you uh, their their theological positions, uh, some of the stuff that they uh, that they believe is being taught in Luke twenty, Galatians six, and then some miscellaneous passages that we'll run through real quickly. So let's start with the historical origins of amillennialism. Um, remember that the New Testament was written from basically the years fifty to ninety eight A.D. or or C.E. current era. Right uh, between the year, years fifty to ninety-eight, that's kind of where you get the New Testament being written. That's the time of the apostles, and uh, shortly after, or during, and after this period, from uh, from sixty to one thirty-five A.D., uh, you have this guy Papias, and Papias is one of the church fathers. He's one of the early church leaders, right? One of the guys that uh, was a, a well-known leader of the church uh, in in the very first few years of the church's existence. So, he was born. When the Apostle Paul was still alive, uh, sorry, the Apostle John was still alive. He, he was around when the Apostle John was still alive. Uh, he lived right at the end of the time of the Apostles, when the Apostles' era was kind of coming to an end. Um, and Papias himself says that there will be a millennial kingdom where Christ will reign on the earth. Now, this is coming from a guy who learned during and from John's ministry. John is the guy who wrote Revelation. He's the guy who wrote the, the gospel that we call John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He talks about the Antichrist. He talks about the tribulation. He talks about the, the kingdom, the 1,000-year kingdom. He's the guy that wrote 1,000, the 1,000 years, right? He's the guy that wrote that. So Papias is someone who learned during and, and from John's ministry, uh, and uh, he came out with theology that was premillennial. He believed that the Messiah would return, Jesus would return, right before establishing a 1,000-year kingdom. So the return of Jesus was pre-millennial, that when the Messiah returns, he would establish a 1,000-year kingdom for the nation of Israel to fulfill all the Old Testament promises. Now, Papias wasn't the only guy that, that understood uh, these ideas in the Old Testament or and New Testament, right? There were other early church leaders, and I'm going to run you through some of them. Uh, there's a guy named Justin Martyr. From, he lived from uh, 100 to 165, 
And, uh, and he said, quote, Right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which then will be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. If you notice what he says there, he says right-minded Christians will know that there will be a thousand-year kingdom in Jerusalem, and it'll be just like Ezekiel and Isaiah said. Right, This guy definitely believed in a millennial kingdom. And I'm going to come back to him in a bit. I'm going to talk about him in, uh, in a little bit. So just kind of hang on to this guy, Justin Martyr. Okay, A different guy, Philip Schaff, he's a historian. He wrote about the theology of the church in its first 300 years of existence. When the church was founded, you know, the first 300 years, which uh, is the anti-Nicene period, uh, what did the church believe during that first 300 years? And here's his description of the church's theology. He says, the most striking point in the eschatology of the anti-Nicene age, so the most, the most striking point in the theology of the end times of the first 300 years of the church is the prominent millennarianism. That's hard to say. Okay, it's it's the idea that there's a millennial kingdom. Millennarianism, right? That is the belief of a visible reign of Christ in glory on earth with the risen saints for a thousand years before the general resurrection and the judgment. It is the widely held opinion of distinguished teachers such as Barnabas, Papias, Justin, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Methodius, Lactantius, etc., on and on, right? The, uh, the early church believed that Jesus would re- return and establish Israel as a kingdom and reign for a thousand years before he ends sin. Another guy, John Chrysostom, lived at the year 400. And uh, re- he says, quote, regarding the fact that they, the Jews, shall believe and be saved, Paul brings Isaiah to witness who cries aloud and says, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. If then this has been promised, but never uh, yet has happened in their case, nor have they ever enjoyed the remissions of sins, certainly it will come to pass. Right? His position is uh, Paul, the apostle Paul said that God would, uh, that, that Jesus would save uh, Israel, he quotes Isaiah on it. So Isaiah also says that God's going to save Israel. And if this has been promised, but it hasn't happened yet, then you can expect it will happen. That's what Isaiah 59 verse 20 promised. It's quoted by the apostle Paul in Romans nine. That is the normal, natural, literal understanding of the old Testament of the new Testament, etc. Uh, Calvinists are typically amillennial which is strange. Uh, Calvinists don't, they don't take prophecy literally. They, uh, they think it's figurative. They, they take it allegorically. And uh, the reason why I say that's weird is because John Calvin himself was against allegorical interpretation. He said, quote, the error of allegory has been the source of many evils. Not only did it open the way for adulteration of the natural meaning of scripture, but also set up boldness in allegorizing as the chief exegetical virtue. See, he was, uh, he was against allegorizing because he knew that that screws up the natural meaning of scripture and it starts to make people go, oh, allegorizing is the way to go. You have to think of something really creative to, to say that the, the text means something even deeper than what it sounds like. And so it becomes this contest of being very clever and witty about, uh, about what you think the text can mean. 
Everything becomes symbolic of something else, layer upon layer. And you can't, you can't prove anyone's right anymore. It can't just be what, what it says. It's got to be what this guy has said that it's symbolic and it, it represents this and etc. Well, Calvin was instrumental in the Geneva Bible, 1575. Here's a quote from the Geneva, Geneva Bible in one of its articles. It says, quote, The blindness of the Jews is neither so universal that the Lord has no elect in that nation, neither will it, it be continual, for there will be a time in which they also will effectually embrace that which they now so stubbornly and for the most part reject and refuse. Right, The Geneva Bible, which John Calvin was part of, understood that there was a time where Israel is going to come back to faith, to, to come to salvation, be restored. Well, the, the, the uh, early church fathers who interpreted scripture accurately came to the same conclusion, future salvation and a kingdom for Israel. You either have to change the meaning of the word Israel to mean something else, or you got to allegorize and spiritualize the text to make it mean something else. Otherwise, the simple, straightforward, normal, natural understanding of the language says that Jesus will be king on earth of a kingdom on earth for a thousand years, fulfilling all the promises to Israel that are found in the Old Testament. And then after that time, he will end sin. There were uh, early church leaders that, uh, uh, well, the early church leaders acknowledged that Christ will establish a kingdom, but as time went on, anti-Semitism started growing in the church. Uh, some of the early church leaders then started to resent the Jews and their theology started to spring up to write out, to write the Jews out of the, uh, of the eschatology. Um, Justin Martyr, the guy that I said I was going to come back to and, and talk about more, this guy, Justin Martyr, called the church the new Israel. And that's kind of where replacement theology had its, its uh, first mention. You know, the idea that uh, the, the church has become the new Israel. Everything that was meant for, the, for Israel now kind of goes over to the church. Uh, another famous early church leader was a guy named Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. Um, and he established the allegorical method of interpreting the text on Israel. He's kind of the guy that says, this is how you have to read it. And then everything has to you know, be symbolic to mean this, and etc. Most notable, though, was a guy named Augustine. Uh, in the fifth century. Uh, he's, he's a long time after the apostles. He's in you know, hundreds of years after the apostles, but he loved allegorizing. And he certainly did that when it came to the issue of eschatology of end times. It, he did that uh, very much when it came to the issue of Israel. Now, historically though, even if amillennialists don't believe in a thousand year kingdom, uh, many can't deny that, that uh, at least Israel is going to be saved. Even if they, they believe that Jesus will return and, and maybe he'll just end sin right away, there won't be this thousand-year kingdom on the earth. If, if, they, if they don't believe in the thousand-year kingdom, fine, but they still believe that Israel will be saved. They, that's something that they, they can't deny, right? I'll read you a few quotes. Um, I'll, I'll just make Austin's job easier and put it all on one slide, and I'll just read them all at once. Here we go. William Perkins, he says, I gather that the nation of the Jews shall be called and converted, right? The Jews are going to be uh, they're going to be saved. Richard Sibbs, he's a Puritan. He, he says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then comes the conversion of the Jews. Why may we not expect it? They were the people of God. Samuel Rutherford, he says, oh, to see the sight next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful, oh day, oh longed for and, and lovely day. Oh dawn, oh sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead, thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. 
John Owen, he says, uh, well, he he was preaching before the House of Commons in 1649, uh, and he said that God would bring home his ancient people, the Jews, to, uh, to be one fold with the fullness of the Gentiles. Matthew Henry, he says, quote, uh, that though for the present time the Jews are cast off, yet the rejection is not final. They are not cast off forever. Cotton Mather, he says, quote, I lay before the Lord, I lift up my cries for the conversion of the Jewish nation. Thomas Boston, he says, quote, there's a day coming where there shall be a national conversion of the Jews converted into the faith of Christ. John Gie, uh, he says, quote, the space of a thousand years in Revelation is to be taken definitively for just this number of years, exactly as appears from having the article prefixed to them, the thousand years. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he says, quote, the Jews and all their dispersions shall cast away their old infidelity and shall have their hearts wonderfully changed and hate themselves for their past unbelief and obstinacy. And John, Jonathan Edwards said the church was the new Israel. He, he believed that, but he couldn't deny the future conversion of Israel. There are many others, but uh, you might not know any of these names. Maybe they mean nothing to you, but if you're, if you're in seminary or if you're, uh, if you're a student of just the history of the church and stuff, uh, you start pick, picking up on these are, these are big names, and they understand that Israel is going to be saved. So historically, all millennialism, uh, it, it kind of had these pockets of thought that, that came up that said either Israel doesn't mean Israel, it means the church. Or they said the thousand years is not a thousand years. It's just it's the kingdom right now and stuff. And you know they, they didn't really have this this uh, formulated, systematized thought until uh, until fairly recently in history. But uh, let's walk through some of the passages that they use in order to assert their position. Uh, we'll start with uh, with Luke twenty, where you get this idea of the transfer of the vineyard, the transfer of the vineyard. It, it'll be this parable about a vineyard and. Uh, we'll look at it. Okay, well, just to give you some context, this is a parable about a guy who owns a vineyard, he goes away on a long journey, and he rents his land out to contract workers, right? These tenants, but he had these contract workers. And that was normal. You know, these would be workers who knew how to take care of crops, but they didn't own the land. So, you know, they would just be hired to do their thing. They're, they're, they're you know, farm babysitters, okay? Uh, this situation is nice for them since they get to work, without the landowner being around. You know, he, he, he left somewhere. So he's not like, he's not micromanaging or anything like that. He just kind of let, let them do their thing. Uh, they get to keep some of the crop as payment. So the more productive they are, the more they're getting paid, right? The, uh, the rest is given to the landowner. There's, there's an amount that they owe to the landowner, a certain percentage. Okay, well, it's harvest time, which means it's time for the owner to send his, uh, one of his servants to go and collect what, what the tenants, what the workers are supposed to give, right? Um, he sends a servant, and when the workers uh, meet the servant, they abuse the servant, and they give him nothing, right? The servant's like, hey, you got to give the landowner his, his, his portion, and uh, they beat him up or something, and then they give him nothing. So the landowner sends a second servant, they do the same to that guy, and then he, he sends a third servant, they do the same thing to that guy. Then finally, it says in chapter 20 of Luke, verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, maybe you've figured out here that the, the story is about Israel's history, right? Israel is God's vineyard. Um, and uh, the parable really is trying to tell you about, uh, about a task that was supposed to be given to some people, but they, they abused it. They screwed it up. And so they will be replaced, Okay, that's, that's really the main idea of the, of the text. And uh, a parable typically has one point. And so if you try to then equate everything else and make this representative of this and this symbolic of this, and you try to do that, then the metaphor breaks down because it's really trying to communicate uh, a moral or a, a principle, right? The principle is uh, the, the people that didn't do their job rightly but were abusive about it, they, uh, they will be replaced, right? And this is clearly the leaders of Israel who would not listen to prophet after prophet after prophet, and then God sends his son, and they're like, well, forget that. Let's kill the son too. And they killed Jesus, and then they screwed it up. So what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? What's what's God going to do? He's going to throw them out, and he's going to he's going to give the vineyard to others. He's going to their responsibilities, their their oversight, all that stuff. It's going to go to someone else, right? So uh, here's uh, here's that's that's the idea of the uh, of the uh, the parable. And Jesus even says in Matthew twenty three and in Luke thirteen, he says, "Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones that are uh, that are sent to you, right? You've killed prophet after prophet, and you're going to kill the son of God, uh, which they do." That's what the leaders of Israel did. So God will come and destroy those workers. He'll give the vineyard to others. So some people, meaning amillennialists, uh, they think that this passage indicates very clearly the end of Israel. All the promises are canceled. God, after all, says that he will throw out the workers, right? The, the tenants, the, the leaders of Israel. He'll throw them out and he'll give the vineyard to others. And so those leaders uh, don't have their privileges or their authority or their benefits anymore. Now, all of that is absolutely true. But who are the others that God will give this vineyard to? Right? Jesus elaborates when, uh, when Matthew describes it, because the same parable is told in Matthew 21 and Mark 12. In, in the Matthew 21 writing of it, in verse 43, uh, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, talking to the Jewish leaders, and given to a people producing its fruits. So when Matthew writes about this moment, he points out how Jesus is identifying the vineyard as the kingdom of God. And uh, remember how the kingdom of God biblically can mean three things. It can mean all creation, or it can mean uh, the people who submit to and obey the, uh, the will of God, or it can mean a physical kingdom, right? It can mean the right, the reign, and the realm, right? It can mean any of those things. Well, Jesus isn't talking about all creation, and he isn't talking about a physical kingdom, so really he's talking about, uh, about uh, people who are truly worshiping and joyfully submitting to and following after God, right? It's those who are saved. Now, up until now, if you wanted to find someone who was saved, where would you go, right? In the New Testament era, if you wanted to find the people of God, where would you go? You would go to Israel. You know, if you wanted to find someone who belonged to Yahweh God and, and, uh, and is bound to go to heaven, where would you go? You'd go to Israel. That's where you should go for that. And that's what will be taken away from the leaders of Israel. Israel will no longer be the place to find the true worshipers of God. That's, you won't find the true kingdom there anymore. Right? God is carving out a new people with new leaders, just as James said in Acts chapter 15, verse 14, which we looked at last week. 
right? The first leaders of that new people are the 12 apostles that Christ appointed. Those are the first leaders. Their authority was confirmed by their, uh, their miraculous powers over disease, over death, over demons, through knowledge and understanding and stuff that they, that they were given by God. They had the keys to the kingdom. And, uh, and they, even though they were Jewish, they unlocked salvation for the Gentiles. And after the apostles, there were prophets in the church. And after them, there were evangelists and, and, and shepherd teachers or pastor teachers, however you want to translate that word, shepherd. Uh, those positions are named in Ephesians 2.20, in Ephesians 4.11, a couple other places. But it comes down even to today, you know, it's, 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 it's the people in the church that, uh, that st- still carry out the same job. Right? It's the overseers, the elders, the, the pastors, the missionaries. It's, it's the warriors and protectors of the gospel. It started with the apostles and under them, God's salvation for people moved from predominantly Jews to Gentiles. The transfer happened. The, the worshipers of God used to be found in Israel, but then it transferred over to the Gentiles. So all of that is true. The amillennialists are not wrong about understanding that parable. That is the right understanding of that parable that Israel was in charge of, of God's vineyard, of the, of the kingdom. And uh, because they screwed it up, God said, it's going to be taken from you, given to, to a different people that, that will produce fruit. So all that's true. God did turn to the Gentiles. He established a new leadership outside of Israel's system, right? The, the Judaism system. He, he did it outside of that. Now, I, I want to show you uh, a couple passages here. Uh, Acts chapter 13 Verse 46, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, the Jews, that the word of God be spoken to you first. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? What this means is Israel was supposed to be a light for the Gentiles. That was God's plan, but they weren't. Right? They, they were abusing the prophets and they killed the son. So they, they weren't being the light that they were made to be. And so God said, I'm, we're turning to the Gentiles. You know, we're going to take all the leadership here. We're going to move it over to the Gentiles. And that's, that's where the, the kingdom of God is going to be. The reign of God will be on the earth uh, in, in Gentile people instead of in Israel. And so that's how God decided to do it. He said, you know, fine, I'll do it myself. And he decided to transfer authority to a different people. Chapter 18, verse 6 of the book of Acts. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I'll go to, you know, the Jews rejected him. Uh, the apostle Paul, they, they rejected him and they, they abused him and stuff. And so he said, forget it. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. So you can't avoid this. There is a transition to a new leadership. It started in Israel and then it moved to a predominantly Gentile leadership. And the question is, is this permanent? This transfer, is it permanent? All millennialists um, would say yes. And post-millennialists would say yes too, because post-millennialism is just a subset of amillennialism. Uh, all millennialists will say yes, the, the transfer is permanent. But I, I hope you see that, that uh, the plain reading of scripture says no. 
that this transfer is not permanent. I'll, I'll run you through some passages on this. Romans eleven twenty five. it says from the Apostle Paul, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right? And the way that that sentence is constructed, it says Israel is hard of heart, right? They're, they're unrepentant until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, when the fullness of the Gentiles is all done, what's going to happen? Israel will then no longer be hard-hearted and Israel will then be saved, right? To quote Jesus in uh, Luke 21, 24, he says, uh, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, right? Uh, there, there's going to be trouble for Israel until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then Israel will be okay because that's when they'll come to faith. If you remember last week, passage after passage said after the Gentiles are saved, Israel will be saved and they will finally become the light that they were supposed to be. Look at Zechariah chapter eight, verse one. And the word of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, and the word of Yahweh of hosts came saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Now he can't say that. Zion is is the the hill that that, uh, Jerusalem is on right? It's, it's Mount Zion, this little hill that, that uh, Jerusalem is on. He can't say that if he doesn't care about Israel anymore. And he can't say that to be representative of the church. That'd be extremely confusing to keep saying Jerusalem and Israel and Zion if it doesn't mean Jerusalem or Israel or Zion. But here he says, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says Yahweh, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts, the holy mountain. Right? He, he, he's saying that the specific mountain will be a holy mountain. And the people of Jerusalem that will be faithful. Right? Those are Jews. That's not figurative. God will dwell in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Jerusalem will be a faithful city sitting on a holy mountain. And you, you know what it'll be like when Israel is a kingdom? Look at verse 20 of Zechariah 8. It says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of Yahweh and to seek Yahweh of hosts. I am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's not figurative. What does that even mean if you're like, well, the kingdom is right now. That's just describing the right now era, the church age. That's not describing the church age at all. Are 10 Gentiles taking hold of a Jew? Even if you try to allegorize the whole thing where you say Jew means believer. 10 unbelievers are not holding on to a believer saying, hey, you have the, you have the truth of God. God is with you. We got to go with you. Nations aren't coming to the church and being like, hey, you have the truth of God. That's not happening. Right? These passages, look at how you have to mutilate them in order to try to make it work into, into your theology if you don't believe they mean what they say. Look what you have to do to them. God says, look, this mountain that the city of Jerusalem is on is going to be holy, and this city is going to be faithful, and I'm going to be there. I'm jealous for those people, and I'm going to get them back. 
right? Jealous means zealous. It's the same word. It did, you know, like he's passionate about it. It belongs to him. And someone else is like, is, 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 you know, like owning it right now. That's, that's Satan, right? He's like someone else is, is, is taking what's mine, what's rightfully mine. And so I'm allowed to be jealous about this thing and I want it back. I will have it back. He's not going to give it up to Satan. Not what he's jealous about. If Satan owns Jerusalem right now and God's jealous for it, he doesn't go, well, that's that. I guess Satan won on that one. The promise was not canceled, forfeited, transferred, allegorized, whatever. God will be with the Jews. They will be his people. Micah 4. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. You can't do anything with that if you don't believe that Israel will be saved and that Jesus will reign. The location is crystal clear. It's Israel. It's Jerusalem, capital city. What do you do with this if you, if you think everything's figurative? You have to throw out most of the Old Testament prophecies and you have to ignore what they say. You have to just go like all of that stuff is just fluff. There's lots of decorative language that means the church age right now. Uh, I love being a Christian. I love being in the church right now. I love being uh, part of the people of God right now. But just by comparison, the church age compared to what's talked about in the prophecies, the church age is garbage, right? This is not the way that it should be, where the world is flowing to the people of God saying, tell us, that's what it should be like. People should be uh, desperate to hear the, the truth, People should be desperate to know the Lord. And it's not like that right now in the church age. You you cannot say that this is the kingdom. There's no way to to defend that. You can't. Was there a transition from Jews to the Gentiles? Yeah, yes, there was. We saw that right there in the parable in Luke 20, right? Yes, there is. But is that transition permanent? Clearly not. God has given volumes of prophecies about Israel's redemption. Gentiles will be in charge for a while of the church. And then when the fullness of the Gentiles is done, then Israel will be saved. And those promises, those predictions, those prophecies, all about the, the, uh, the future redemption of Israel. They're not mistakes. They aren't wasted words that are canceled or forfeited. The vineyard is predominantly Gentile today, but when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Israel will be grafted back in. Israel will be right back where they're supposed to be. Well, that's Luke 20. Let me show you Galatians 6. This is a much shorter talk in case you're thinking, oh my gosh, that we only did one out of three. You know, that this won't be short, right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The only thing I'm going to boast about is in the cross of Jesus. Verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Right? So here's this second uh, concept that all millennialism will use. The, the Israel of God. They'll say, ah, you see that? 
right? The Israel of God. That's another way to say the church. The church is the Israel of God. Uh, And I would say, no, that actually is a complete misfire on like, you know, you have uh, not misfire, uh, the misunderstanding of the whole book of Galatians, right? What's Galatians about? If you can't answer that question, what's Galatians about? If you can't answer that question, how do you even know what's being said here, right? That drives me crazy when people sit there and try to argue a verse, but they don't even know what the book's about. They, they quote something from, from Ephesians, and I go, what's Ephesians about? They don't even know. So if they don't even know the context, they don't even know the purpose of what's going on, they, what, is that, what do they know about that sentence, right? When someone points to Galatians 6.14 and says, aha, see the Israel of God, they go, see, the church is the Israel of God. And I say, what's the book of Galatians about? If they can't answer that, they miss the whole thing. Galatians is about the problem of this group of Jewish, uh, Jewish guys walking around in the church saying, we're Christians too. But they, uh, they, they started spreading this thing where they're like, if you're Christian though, you still have to do this Judaism thing. You still have to get circumcised. You still have to observe a kosher diet. You know, you have to do the ceremonial rituals and sacraments and things. You still have to do the Judaism thing because, you, you know, the law is the law and, and we're God's people. And so they were, uh, they were labeled Judaizers because they were telling all the, the, the new Christians, no matter what nation you came from, they're like, if you want to be a Christian, you also have to be Jewish in terms of the way that you practice. So they were Judaizers. And Paul's whole point of the book of Galatians is to condemn that. He's like, the Jews that are walking around saying that Christians have to become Jewish, like they missed the whole point. The only thing that we should boast in is not circumcision. It's not kosher diet. It's not the ceremonies and rituals and sacraments. The only thing we boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing we put our faith in, just the cross. Because neither circumcision Circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. That's not it. It's just being a new creation by faith in Jesus on the cross. Right? That's the only thing that makes you a a true believer. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to do all the Jewish things. You just got to have faith in Jesus and understand his work on the cross. That's the one thing you boast in. And for everybody who walks by this rule, everyone who understands this idea, if you get it that the only thing that matters is Jesus on the cross, peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. What's that? That's in contraposition to the Judaizers, right? Peace be on you and on the Jews that understand this. Peace be on you and the Israelites that know that Jesus on the cross is the gospel. And that's in contraposition to the Judaizers who say, yes, Jesus is on the cross, but also circumcision and kosher diet and rituals and sacraments and ceremonies and stuff. Remember, because Paul distinguishes that being a Jew biologically or ethnically does not necessarily make you a Jew religiously, spiritually, right? You can, you can be a national Jew, you could be an Israelite, someone born from a Jewish family, but not be religiously Jewish, right? You've, you've seen that. Paul talks about that. Romans chapter two, verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who, mere, who is merely one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And if you notice what he's saying there is like, look, your biology and the, the stuff that happens to your flesh, like circumcision, that stuff is not what makes you part of the people of God, right? And just because you're biologically descended from Abraham, just because you are biologically an Israelite does not make you one of God's children, right? Only, only the ones who give their hearts to him and who put their faith in Jesus Messiah, right? They're the ones that are saved. They're the ones that are the children of God. So the redemption of Israel will be ethnic Jews, biological ethnic Jews that have faith in Jesus. That's what we can look forward to in the future. The Israel of God simply means genuine Jewish believers. That's the Israel of God. Genuine Jewish believers who understand that the law doesn't save, circumcision doesn't save, kosher diet doesn't save, faith in Jesus saves. Jesus dying on the cross saves. The Israel of God began with uh, 3,000 Jews that were saved in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it expanded to like 20,000 more or something like that. And that's how the church began. It spread. It got to Antioch. That's where they were first called Christians. And then from there, it launched into the Gentile world. And uh, when, when missionaries like Paul went out on missions, they first went to synagogues to preach the gospel to the Jews. And some of those Jews would be saved. That's the Israel of God. Well, you looked at Luke 20, you looked at Galatians 6. Let me show you just a few other passages to kind of wrap it up and show you other, other moments that uh, amillennialism will try to assert its theology. Uh, amillennialists refer to other passages to, uh, to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is not a literal, physical kingdom. Look at Matthew 12, verse 28. It says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so here, Jesus is saying that, you know, driving out demons is evidence that the kingdom of God is here. So they go, see, the kingdom of God is not a literal physical kingdom. His driving out demons is is proof that the kingdom of God is already here. Okay. Luke 17, verse 20, which we looked at last week. It says, uh, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Right? So we've seen this. Jesus says the coming of the kingdom can't be observed. It's here already. And so the amillennialists say it's not a literal physical kingdom. Okay. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Uh, They point out, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul's description of the kingdom of God here is defined not by uh, national borders and things, not, like, not a physical, a literal physical kingdom, but it's defined by Christian character, you know, righteousness, peace, joy. So it's not a literal physical kingdom. All millennialists also point out that uh, the thousand years in Revelation 20, if you remember that passage, uh, the thousand years, that could be a figurative number because... In other parts of scripture, the number 1,000 is used figuratively. 
And here's where they point to. Uh, Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. It says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, let's look at First uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verse 15. Remember God's covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So, uh, you know, all millennialists will say that the, um, that the thousand the cattle on a thousand hills, you know, it, it's not trying to tell you an exact number of hills. And uh, remember his covenant for a thousand generations. It's not trying to say after a thousand, then forget his, his covenant. So they say, you know, thousand means just this long indefinite amount of time. Uh, the, uh, in Revelation 20, the thousand year kingdom is characterized by a binding of Satan. It says that, that, uh, that Jesus binds Satan for a thousand years. And that's when he has his kingdom reigning on the earth. And after the thousand years, he releases Satan from the binding. And then there's a, like a, this final conflict where he just judges sin and throws Satan into the lake of fire. Um, and so the amillennialists will say that the binding of Satan during the, the kingdom of, of Revelation 20 has already occurred. The church age is this kingdom that Jesus is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God. All of that's true. And his kingdom is right now. See, that's the thing. This is not his action. This is not the fullness of his kingdom. It's not, okay? Uh, they say that Satan uh, is bound right now. He's deceiving the nations and all that stuff. That's, that's uh, been bound because now the gospel can go and, uh, and convert people's hearts, right? And so uh, his, like his influence isn't gone completely, but the nations can be converted by the, by the message of the gospel. And so he's bound, Does, does Satan seem bound to you? I don't know. I mean, I don't want you to form your theology just based on your, your opinion of your experiences. I'd rather you, you draw it from Scripture and Scripture alone, you know, to, to draw out the understanding of, of what's being said in Scripture and to, to conclude based on that. But that's just like, that's the first question that hits my head. Like, is, is this the time when Satan's bound? Do I feel like Satan's bound? I don't know. I don't know. But... Look, I, I don't think all millennialism is wrong about the kingdom of God. I don't, I don't think they're wrong about, what, uh, about those things that they said. See, I don't think w- what they thought was wrong about a lot of the stuff that they talked about in terms of uh, the kingdom of God is not the literal physical kingdom in those passages that we looked at. I just don't think they have the complete right answer. Right? They, they, they understood those passages right, and then they didn't get the complete right answer. They didn't, they didn't get the, the, the rest of the story. Look, remember the way Scripture describes the kingdom of God, three different ways. His right, his reign, his realm. Right? His right is everything in all creation is his kingdom. Right? God created everything, so he has the right to rule it all. Right? So everything's his kingdom. If he wants to explode the earth just because he's fed up with it, he has the right to do that. It's his kingdom. Okay? So that's his right. Then his reign the people who worship him, that's his reign. When demons uh, you know, leave, that's his, 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 his reign. That shows his authority on the earth is, uh, is being submitted to. It's being obeyed, right? That's his reign. And that's another way that the scriptures talk about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And then finally, his realm. The kingdom of God is a kingdom. It's an actual location. It's ruled by a king. And it's important to go in that order because the kingdom in Revelation 20 is characterized by all three. God made it. It's people joyfully submit to and obey him. 
and it's established on the earth above other kingdoms and nations because it's a literal physical kingdom. So yes, casting out demons shows the reign of Christ. That is the, the kingdom of God. That's the, you know, the, that's the, the, king, the kingdom of God, even though it's not physical and literal. That is the kingdom. Yes, because that's his reign. You can't see the, the coming of the reign of Christ everywhere. You can't see when people are becoming Christians. You, they don't start glowing. You know, it's not like they leveled up and bing, you like there's a sound in a, a light or something. Right? Righteousness, peace, joy, that's what characterized the people who joyfully submit to the reign of Christ. That's true. That's the kingdom, his reign. It's his uh, kingdom in terms of population. If you've seen Thor Ragnarok, okay, I'm going to do this pop culture reference here. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, so uh, I'm just going to, I'll signal you when, this, the, when it's, it's done. But uh, if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, right, there are two ways that they understand uh, Asgard. Asgard is a place, a literal physical place, and then it explodes. And uh, a bunch of people, are, you know, Thor and, and, and all his, his people are on a, a ship. And he's like, you know what? Asgard's not a place. It's a people. And so they, they, wherever they go, this is where Asgard is. It's, you know, Asgard is the people. Look, it's the same thing, right? The, the kingdom of God is all his people, and he's eventually going to give them a place. He promised them land. So the kingdom, his people, will be given a kingdom, a place, right? His people are the kingdom. The place is the kingdom. His people will be given the place. All right, I hope that, that makes sense. When it comes to the use of the term a thousand, by the way, uh, when it comes to the, the, the use of the term a thousand, the, the amillennialists think that, uh, that the, you know, they've proven, ah, see, a thousand is used figuratively in scripture, you know, I own cattle on a thousand hills. I own, I, uh, you should remember his covenant for a thousand generations. And, uh, and so look, those are, remember we talked about the normal, natural interpretation of scripture. The normal, natural interpretation of scripture says that the use of the word thousand there is clearly an expression. It's meant to be uh, this, this indefinite number because context tells us that when he says, I own all the animals, I own cattle on a thousand hills, he's not saying that's where it ends. He's trying to say, I own everything, right? So his use of the word thousand is to, to uh, present a fullness and like an unendingness because that was the highest uh, unit of number in Hebrew, Right when he says, "Remember his his uh, covenant for a thousand generations." Right, he, he, it's not to tell the ending of it, but to express its unendingness. That's the idea. The way that the the the, the word thousand is being used there is to indicate unendingness. However, in Revelation twenty, when it talks about a thousand years, it's used to measure time to tell you when it will end. Right? Look at Revelation 20, verse 2. Uh, Jesus sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Right? Uh, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan. He bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might, de- he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So the, the, the uh, use of the word thousand there is to give you a measurement 
And it gives you the number and the unit, a thousand years. And it tells you when it will end. And it says, after that, something has to happen. Look at verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. There's a definite article, the, the thousand years. It's not an expression. It's an actual measurement. We're told what happens after that thousand years because the thousand years ends. And when, when does the thousand years end? After a thousand years, right? You certainly can't, uh, you shouldn't take it for uh, the same way as thousand hills, a uh, thousand generations. Because when it says, I own cattle on a thousand hills, he's saying he owns everything more than a thousand, like on and on, can't count them. Uh, remember his covenant for a thousand generations. That should, should be infinite generations forever and ever. So how long will Satan be uh, bound? Infinitely? And then after that, he's going to be released? You can't, you can't even handle thousand years the same way that you were, you were trying to with the Old Testament texts. Thousand in Revelation 20 means thousand. That's the normal, natural reading of scripture. Look, blessed are those who read scripture and take it to heart. You can only be blessed in this way if you understand it. And you can only understand it if it means what it says. Because if it doesn't, you have no idea if you're right. If it doesn't mean what it says, you got to make something up and hope you guessed it correctly. The Bible says Israel will repent and trust in the Messiah. And that's what that means. Messiah will return and defeat the nations. That's what that means. Messiah will establish his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. That's what that means. Messiah will bind Satan and rule on the earth for a thousand years. That's what that means. Then Messiah will release Satan and destroy sin. That's what that means. And then Messiah and his kingdom will persist on a new heavens and new earth for life everlasting. That's what that means. And if you read that and understand it, then you can take it to heart and you will be blessed. Amen. Let's pray. God, I hope we get it. I hope, uh, I hope we, we looked even at, uh, at some of the passages and positions that are posited by the all-millennialist argument. And God, I just hope that we take you at your word, that we don't need to trust in someone to, uh, to spiritualize it, think of something clever to make it sound like it has a new, hidden, deeper meaning. It means what it says. And we we rejoice in the fact that scripture is understandable. It's not some book of riddles. It's not a bunch of codes. It means what it says. So when you said you're going to save Israel, you were not messing around with us. You weren't, you weren't deceiving us. You weren't confusing us. You were telling us that you were going to save Israel and you're going to give them land. You're going to give them a kingdom. We are grateful that you are a God who keeps his promises. And again and again, week after week, we keep coming back and looking at the same thing, making the exact same point, and yet still, God, help us to stand back and just again and again be amazed 
that you are who you say you are and you will do what you said you will do. We look forward to that day when the king comes to the people of his kingdom and he gives them the place of the kingdom and he rules on Mount Zion, the holy mountain, in Jerusalem, a faithful city. And his glory is known throughout the world. Thanks so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.